Good morning. I'm going to ask you to find uh, two passages of Scripture. The first is the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and the second is the book of Acts, chapter 1. Maybe just take the insert out of your bulletin and put it in Acts, chapter 1. We will get there eventually. We're primarily concerned with Colossians, chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, again, a warm welcome to you. In the bulletin, you will find sermon notes. Uh, They may or may not prove useful, helpful to you, Uh, your choice. You use them if you you like. Uh, But you have uh, come, really, at the conclusion of a series. We were in the Psalms of Ascent for four or five months. And today we are beginning a series on the book of Colossians, and we will be in this book for at least the next five months. The title for this series, um, Christ is Incomparable, or The Incomparable Christ. And so by series end, we should all be convinced. We should all clearly understand why the Lord Jesus is indeed incomparable. And we should also understand, we should also grasp the implications of his incomparableness. The incomparable Christ. Uh, The title for this sermon series based on the book of Colossians. We're going to ease our way in today. Uh, You know, when you vacation at the seaside, at the ocean, the lake, whatever. And uh, it comes time to enter the water feet first, right? You just ease your way in. You need to acclimatize yourself. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to get our feet wet, ease our way in by looking at the first two verses. We're going to take it nice and easy. And so follow along as I read and declare God's word for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now I want us to begin, all of us, by honing in on two words. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers, here they are, two words, in Christ. That's it, in Christ. This is going to be our central thought today. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, and these words, this quotation is in the sermon notes. If you have got hold of this idea, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. If, big if, huge if, you have got hold of this idea, not merely apprehended it intellectually, but grasped it with your inner being, your heart, if you have got hold of this idea, what it means to be in Christ, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. Friend, are you interested in knowing the most glorious truth there is to know in human existence? That's what we're about today. Do you have the least interest in knowing, understanding, comprehending, What is the greatest, the most glorious truth there is upon the face of the earth to know what it means to be 
in Christ. That's our business. That's our goal. That is our objective today. These two verses are fairly straightforward. Basically, an introduction, a greeting, right? That's what we have. And in this greeting, two things are identified for us. Firstly, in the very first verse, what do we have identified? The author. Who wrote this epistle? Who penned it? Very first word, Paul. He confirms it in chapter 4, verse 18, the very last verse of the book. And so the author is Paul. Now, what's fascinating, I'm trying to convince you it's fascinating. It is fascinating. In this verse, as he sends his greetings, as he basically says, hello, of everything he could say, he mentions two things. And so that should show us what? That these two things, at least in Paul's estimation, are fairly significant. Two things. I'm going to mention the second first because I have the least to say about it. The second thing he mentions, Timothy. He identifies his colleague. And Timothy, our brother. Why does he bother to mention Timothy? Why at the very outset of this epistle does he see fit, does he feel the need to throw this name in there, his younger colleague in his missionary service, his missionary endeavor? I think simply for the following reason. At some point, very soon, Timothy is going to end up ministering where? In the city of Ephesus. Ephesus and Colossae are located in what country? Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Back then, it was called Asia Minor. It was a district within the Roman Empire. They're located close together. Timothy is going to end up ministering in the city of Ephesus in the midst of a pitched battle with heretics. His influence is going to extend beyond Ephesus, undoubtedly, to where? Colossae. Paul is envisioning this. Paul sees this in the days, the months ahead. And so what is he doing here? He is already laying the groundwork. He is already familiarizing even those believers in Colossae with this man, Timothy. Why? Because he wants to impress upon them that Timothy ministers as an extension of the ministry of Paul. Now back to the first thing he mentions in this verse. Paul, here it is, in addition to referring to his colleague Timothy, he refers to his ministry. And what does Paul say concerning himself? An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And why does he mention this right off the bat? Because he is establishing what? His authority. If I can put words in his mouth. Look, my friends, I'm going to say some very pointed things in this epistle. I'm going to declare some tremendous truths in this epistle. And I don't want there to be any doubt. I don't want there to be any question. I don't want there to be any debate. I write, please understand this, I write as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so he's declaring what? We don't like this word today. He's declaring his authority. The word apostle from the Greek, apostolos. It's a transliteration of the word. We find it throughout the New Testament. It's used in varying ways. At times, this term apostle, in a a very general 
sense, broad sense, simply refers to a messenger. Somebody who's sent on an errand, somebody who is sent out with a message, they are an apostle. They are a messenger. At other times, it is used a little more exclusively in reference to gospel preachers. They're sent out with a message. Their message as heralds is the gospel. And so Timothy at at times is described like this. Barnabas at times is described like this. Uh, An apostle, that that is a proclaimer, a herald of the good news, the gospel. But at times, and most commonly in the New Testament, this term apostle is used in a very restrictive, very limited, very exclusive sense in reference to whom? the commissioned representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ is used in an official sense. That is how Paul is using it here. He is using it officially. He's not simply saying, look, I'm a messenger. He is not simply saying, I'm a gospel preacher. He is saying, I am a commissioned representative of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and I want you to get this, and I want you to get it good. It is by the will of God. Two important questions as we handle this. The first question is this. How does Christ commission these apostles, men like Paul? How did he do this? That's why I've asked you to find the book of Acts. And so turn there now. Maybe you put your insert in there. That's what I put in there. And go back to Acts chapter 1. And I want us to notice three things. And basically these three, they constitute three qualifications As we answer this question, how does Christ commission his apostles? Well, firstly, most obviously, he chooses them. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, it's Luke who's writing. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there is the first qualification. Christ chooses his apostles. Well, what about the apostle Paul? Um, He wasn't one of the original band, the disciples. How did Christ choose Paul? We read of it where? In Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus. Christ appears to Paul and he calls him, he chooses him. As a matter of fact, later in that chapter, in reference to that incident on the road to Damascus, Christ declares to Ananias that Paul is his chosen instrument. So there's qualification number one. Christ chooses his apostles. Qualification number two is this. Christ makes them witnesses to his resurrection. And so look at verse 3, back in Acts chapter 1. Christ makes his apostles witnesses, eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Verse 3, to them, he's still referring to his apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Look at what Luke records later, same chapter, verse 21. Judas has been rejected. Judas has actually committed suicide. And now the apostles are looking for one to replace Judas. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time 
that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there's the qualification. These men were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? Again, it's Acts chapter 9, isn't it? He's on the road to Damascus. Who appears to him? The resurrected Christ. As Paul reflects on that years later, he pens in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ appeared to James. That was his half-brother. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Christ chooses his apostles. And secondly, Christ makes his apostles eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And then thirdly, third qualification, Christ confirms his apostles through signs and wonders. You still have the book of Acts handy? Look at chapter 2. We're going to go on a brief journey here. I trust it will be pleasant. Look at verse 22. Acts chapter 2. We're at Pentecost. Peter is preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And note the phraseology here. Please, please, please note. A man, he's referring to Jesus, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And so how did God attest to the authority of his son, the Lord Jesus? He did so, notice the three words, through works, wonders, and signs. Now, same chapter, look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So here we see this emphasis on signs and wonders carried on from Christ To the actual apostles, look at chapter 5, still in the book of Acts. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And so Christ confirms his apostles, how? Through signs and wonders. These signs and wonders attest to their authority, just as they attested to his own authority. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? Well, still in the book of Acts, and here we will end our journey in the book of Acts. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. Paul, along with Barnabas, are in Iconium. Acts 14, verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness, God himself bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so again, even Paul, as he writes at one point again to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, could claim the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The true sign of an apostle. And so that is how Christ commissions these men, his apostles, 
his commissioned official representatives. He chooses them. He makes them witnesses to his resurrection, and he confirms them through signs and wonders. Second question is this. Why does Christ bother to do this? Why bother commissioning these men at all? Why does he commission apostles, official representatives? We find the answer back really in John 20, verse 21, where he says to his apostles, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. How had the Father sent the Son? He had sent him with authority. And he attested to his authority and his identity through those signs and wonders which the Lord Jesus Christ himself performed. Now the Lord Jesus says to his apostles, just as the Father sent me invested with divine authority, I now send you invested with divine authority. In other words, I now send you as an extension of my ministry. Why? It is foundational. They are going to function, they are going to serve as what? The foundation, this is confirmed in Ephesians chapter 2, they are going to serve, they are going to minister, they are going to function as what? The foundation of the church, invested with divine authority, the same authority which Christ himself possessed. They are his commissioned representatives during this infancy stage of the church, and their ministry is primarily what? It is foundational. And so even Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, could declare the following, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. What is that? As a claim to divine revelation. And that is a claim to what? Divine authority. And so the apostles, Christ commissioned representatives for the purpose of founding the church and a huge part of their role in the foundation of the church is what? It is the New Testament. Either in authoring or in sanctioning those books which today constitute what we hold to as the New Testament canon. Now, what are the implications of all of this? I hope you're thinking to yourself, I won't be offended. Stephen, why are you bothering with any of this? That's all right if you're thinking that way. There is a reason. We get to it now. What are the implications? I mean, this is a loaded phrase, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What are the implications of all of this for us? The first, I'm going I'm to state a couple. There are many. I'm just going to limit myself to two. The first is this, implication number one, by way of protection. By way of protection. It is important that we be crystal clear on this, apostleship, what it is, what it isn't, for our own protection. I submit to you this day that the greatest challenge, the greatest challenge, that the church faces in our day pertains to how we define, how we perceive, and how we understand the role of the apostles in the foundation of the church. I submit that to you. That is probably one of the greatest challenges we will face, even within so-called conservative circles in our day. Let me affirm three things for our protection. Number one, I affirm that the gift of apostleship ceased with the death of the last of the apostles. 
apostleship was a spiritual gift. It's called that in Ephesians 4.11, Ephesians 4.10, Ephesians 4.11. Apostleship was a spiritual gift that belonged to the foundational stage of the church. Anyone who claims that gift today has entered the realm of the religious nut. N-U-T. I did say it. Nut. Anyone who claims to possess that gift today, apostleship, has entered the realm of the religious nut. I don't say that because I am looking for controversy. I say that pastorally as a shepherd for our, for your protection. The gift ceased with the death of the last of the apostles. Number two, I affirm that the signs and wonders which accompanied Christ and his apostles for the purpose of attesting to their divine authority have also ceased. That is not to deny that God performs miracles today. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying this. I am denying that there is any human being who has ever lived since the days of the apostles who performs the same signs and wonders as an attestation of their divine authority. I affirm that it does not exist. I affirm, let me repeat it, that the signs and wonders which accompany Christ and his apostles for the purpose of attesting to their divine authority have also ceased. Number three. And please mark my words carefully. I affirm that any spiritual gift, notice these words, they're nuanced. I've chosen them carefully. I affirm that any spiritual gift associated with the revelation of God's truth has ceased because these gifts became redundant with the completion of the New Testament. These three, what I've just affirmed, these three are foundational, non-negotiable. They are foundational to what it means to believe in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. This is a pillar. With this statement, I'll, I'll conclude this thought. This is a pillar of Reformed, Biblical, Historical, Confessional Orthodoxy. And we depart from it to our peril, our absolute peril. And so I plead with you, brother and sister, if there is lingering confusion in your mind, you consider very carefully the modern-day implications of what Paul is saying there at the outset of this epistle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. The second thing I want to emphasize is this, pastorally, not so much by way of protection, but by way of exhortation. If this is true when it comes to the Word of God, and the canon is completed, and we affirm, and we do affirm it here at Grace Community Church, the absolute authority and the absolute sufficiency in all things of the Word of God, if we affirm that, then by way of, of exhortation, it means that this Word, this book, is to be cherished. It is to be esteemed. And it is to be obeyed. I didn't hear an amen, but many of us are thinking undoubtedly inwardly, amen. We believe that. We affirm that. Here's the question I pose to you. But do we deny it 
Do we deny the practical authority and sufficiency of God's word by the very way we live? So I'm not asking what we declare verbally. I'm asking what we practice publicly. Do we actually deny and by our conduct undermine the absolute authority and sufficiency of God's word? It's practical authority and sufficiency by the way we live. Please, and I'm going to speak forthrightly here. And I, and I do so, I pray compassionately and with the Spirit of Christ. If you claim to be a Christian, but you play fast and loose with the Word of God, do us all a favor and stop calling yourself a Christian. Do us all a favor. Do the church of the Lord Jesus Christ a big favor. And do the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a big favor. And stop calling yourself a Christian. To love Christ is to love his word. To love his word is to love Christ. And we cannot play fast and loose with the word of God. It is for us. It is for his people. And of primary importance, we declare our love for the Lord Jesus. How? If you love me. You will do whatever you jolly well please. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, to love Christ is to love the Word. To love the Word is to love Christ. That is an exhortation. The Bible is to be cherished. It is to be esteemed. And it is, whether we like it or not, it is to be obeyed. So much for the author, Paul. So much for verse 1. Second thing that stands out. In verse 2 is what? The audience to whom he is writing. Notice firstly and quickly their physical location. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, where are they? At Colossae. It's a city. Already mentioned it. If you can picture Turkey on the map, the Aegean Sea, which is located between Turkey and Greece, right over near the west coast, not on the coast, but down into that region, the western side of Turkey, you'll find the cities of Ephesus, and then southeast from Ephesus, you'll find the city of Colossae. That's their physical location. What do we know about their spiritual location? Here comes the phrase to which I directed your attention way back in the introduction. To the saints and faithful brothers, here it is, their spiritual location in Christ. And so here we are introduced to the greatest, most glorious theme, truth, we will ever comprehend. And here we are introduced to the theme which provides the foundation for everything the Apostle Paul is going to say subsequently in this letter. If you don't get this, you won't get the rest of it. Everything he says in this letter relates back in one form, one way or another to this glorious truth, what it means to be in Christ. And so here we have entered the realm of this great theological motif, union with Christ. What we need to understand, and we are up for this, hone in, focus, worship God in truth, that is using your mind. What we must grasp is that when we speak of union, and we look at God's revelation, the Bible as a whole, there are actually three marvelous unions that involve us. There are others, but we're speaking of us as his people. Three marvelous unions. And actually, let, let, me, just, let me just check something right there. If you are an unbeliever, I, I want to be very upfront with you right now. I am delving, I'm about to delve into God's relationship with his people. 
And so I want you to hear this up front. God's message to you as your king is very simple. It is to repent of your sin and to believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to be clear. That is his message to you. What I'm about to say now in regards to this theme of union concerns those who have repented of their sin. Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in union with God. Three great unions. Number one is this. There is an eternal union. It is the Father's election of his people. Ephesians 1, in Christ, God chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. And so he has a people. He has a specific people in mind. Even before we enter into his secret will, some of us probe this in the study on Wednesday night, we enter into the realm of his secret will, the realm of his decrees, the mind of God, the plans and purposes of God, that there exists this union, an eternal union between God and his people insofar as his purpose is concerned. An eternal union, the Father's election of us, his people. The second union is this. It is a historical union. We no longer have in view the Father's election of His people. We have in view the Son's redemption of His people. All those whom the Father has given to me will come to me. There are a specific people in view. The Son's redemption of these people. Important for us to grasp. That when the Son of God became a man, he became a mediator. What does a mediator do? He acts on behalf of others. He acts as what? Their representative. And so the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth as a man, he acted as a mediator on behalf of his people. And everything he ever did on this earth, he did as their mediator. He obeyed God as the mediator of his people. He prayed to God as the mediator for his people. He fulfilled all righteousness as the mediator of his people. He hoped, he believed, he loved as the mediator of his people. He died as the mediator of his people. He was buried as the mediator of his people. He rose again. He ascended on high. He now lives to make intercession forevermore as the mediator of his people. People. And so this union is a redemptive union. The son's redemption of his people. The third union is this. It is the mystical. Or what we might better call, because mystical could prove maybe a stumbling block to some of us. The spiritual union. The spirits. And so I trust you see the triune emphasis. The eternal union, the father's election of us. The redemptive or historical union, the Son's redemption of us, His people. And now the spiritual union, the Spirit's sanctification of His people. Whereby, by and through the Holy Spirit entering into us, we are made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that union, and this is wonderful, I know it is theological, but this is wonderful. And this is the foundation from which we bless and worship and praise God. This spiritual union becomes the link and the only link between redemption accomplished and redemption applied. 
redemption accomplished. Everything the Lord Jesus Christ ever did as our mediator, as our substitute, that is on behalf of his people. Let me understand. The gospel so many times, and I pray you won't misunderstand me, but sadly in our preaching of the gospel so many times, we, we, we just relegate it to the cross. That's true. The cross is the focal point. But please understand, the gospel is the entire life of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he lives as our mediator, as he loves others, his father as our mediator, as he perseveres as our mediator, as he obeys, fulfilling all righteousness as our mediator, as he prays, and yes, yes, as he dies, and as he conquers death, and as he arises from the dead, and he ascends on high, he does so as our mediator. That is redemption accomplished. And in that redemption accomplished, what does our mediator do? He buys, he purchases Every blessing associated with salvation. He purchases righteousness whereby we're forgiven. He purchases holiness. He purchases adoption into the family of God. He purchases eternal life. He purchases faith, hope, and love. He purchases everything through redemption accomplished. Well, how do we partake of all those blessings, all those things which he purchased, that is redemption applied. We only do it one way. It is by union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Mystical, spiritual union, whereby the Spirit sanctifies us, that is, makes us one with the Lord Jesus, whereby everything he purchased and accomplished, redemption accomplished, now flows to us by grace, redemption applied. And all of those promises, all of those gifts, all of those blessings, all of those privileges, they become ours. Now in verse 2, Paul actually mentions in passing five of these blessings. First is this, we enjoy a new position to the saints Nothing wrong with that interpretation. I'm more inclined to think it's an adjective to the holy and faithful brothers. Doesn't matter. Saints, someone who is sanctified. Someone who is sanctified is someone who is holy. Someone who is holy is someone who is set apart. Someone who is consecrated to God. So by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we are what? We are set apart. We are consecrated. And now we stand upon His merit. We commune with him in his names and titles. That's why we're called Christians. We commune with him in his righteousness. He forgives us our guilt. We commune with him in his sanctification, his holiness. He cleanses us of our filth. And we commune with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This is our new position And it is the fount of every blessing we know by virtue of the gospel. There's a story, fact or fiction, I have no idea. I heard a preacher tell it years ago of a man, Midwest, early 1800s, who was a recluse, raised in in seclusion, semi-isolation, in his mid-20s, late-20s, very little contact with the outside world. And one day a bank manager from the East Coast tracked him down, found him to inform him that a distant relative, someone he never even heard of, had left him $50,000 in his will. 
$50,000, not much to us. That's millions, right, in today's valuation. And the man really wasn't that impressed. The bank manager went away. A year later, he took a look at the account and noticed that this man hadn't withdrawn a cent, hadn't touched it, had, certainly hadn't come to claim it. Puzzled, he returns to visit with this man and said, did you not, did you not understand me? $50,000, yours, bank account, East Coast, come and claim it. To which the man responded, is there enough in there to buy a sack of corn? Is there enough in there to buy a sack of corn? He had no understanding of the value of $50,000. It was completely meaningless to him. I dare say some of us in this room are just like that man. We don't get it. We don't really get it. What is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ? A.W. Pink summed up this problem pretty succinctly. The great mistake by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. It is all there. We are holy. We are saints, set apart, a new position. Second blessing is this, a new motivation to the saints, that is to the holy and faithful, unwavering in their commitment. Commitment to what? To the Lord, to know His will and to do it. The power to obey, the power to be faithful comes from God, but never misunderstand this, Christian. Never misunderstand this. The power comes from God, but the act is ours. Yes, the power, we praise God, it is of His grace, but the action is ours. And so by virtue of this union with the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, there is now a new principle reigning in us, a new motivation, a new starting point, whereby we desire to know His will and to do it. We desire to be faithful, obedient. You know, here in Texas, you go, you take a drive, I think even just up to 56, you'll notice, you'll definitely notice white speed signs, right? 70 miles an hour, maybe 65, no, 70 miles an hour as you go up 56. Those white signs are what? They are mandatory. Uh, you exceed that speed limit and there's a state trooper or a deputy or somebody around, you're going to get caught and you will be fined, you'll be charged, enough to pay that fine, right? But as you make your way up 56 to Granberry, there are a couple of wines in the road where there are actually yellow signs. And the speed maybe drops to, what, 55 or 60 because the bend is really sharp. Do you know those aren't actually mandatory? They are advisory. Do you know if you speed through that, you actually cannot be, technically speaking, fined? It is not mandatory. The white signs are mandatory. The yellow signs are advisory. You might be foolish for going 70 when it says 50, but you can't actually, technically speaking, haven't broken the law. You want, you want to know what far too many Christians, what their problem is? When it comes to God's commands, they think that God's commands are yellow signs. Advice. Advisory. No, they are not. They are white. They are mandatory. You're thinking to yourself, Stephen, you're starting to sound like a raving legalist up there. Understand, friend, please. A desire to know God's law and obey it is not a sign of legalism. A desire to know God's law and obey it is a sign of grace. It is a sign of a transformed heart. It is a sign of union with Christ. The law, God's law, is an enemy, note my words, an enemy to those who are outside Christ. Why? Because God is an enemy 
to those outside Christ. But God's law is a friend to those who are in Christ. Why? Because God is a friend to those who are in Christ. His laws are not advisory. His laws are mandatory. And by virtue of our union with Christ, there is a new principle. And there is a desire to know and a delight in knowing and obeying his will, whereby we are described as, in the sincerity of our hearts, not the perfection of our hearts, we are described as faithful. Third blessing is this. We enjoy a new community to the holy and faithful brothers. By virtue of this union, this mystical spiritual union with Christ, we have become part of the body of Christ. We've become part of the bride of Christ, and as a result, this body, we have brothers, we have other family members. It is a community birthed, says one preacher, birthed from a common conviction about God's truth, a common experience of God's grace, and a common inclination from God's Spirit. Fourth blessing is this, we enjoy grace and peace to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God. These two, grace and peace, are inseparable. Uh, Many people, their biggest problem today is what? Uh, Their sense of entitlement. Uh, We live in a society, a culture plagued by a sense of entitlement. People feel entitled to certain benefits from the government. They feel entitled to generous retirement packages from their employers. They feel entitled to the standard of living enjoyed by others. They feel entitled to the latest material luxury. And on and on and on it goes. The sadness implicit in all of this is what? That when it comes to God, far too many people, dare I say the vast majority of us, we feel entitled. God owes me. I've done this. I behave like that. God owes me. God owes me a happy life. God owes me a happy marriage. God owes me financial security and prosperity. God owes me this. God owes me that. Friend, God does not owe you anything. Not a thing. Nothing. The only claim we can make is to divine judgment. That is all he owes us. That is all we have coming. Oh, understand grace, my friend. It is all of grace. And mortify this inner feeling, this this, this thing which rears its ugly head constantly. I'm entitled. We are entitled to nothing. And when we are made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand, we stand in grace. And the result of this grace is what? It is an experience of? Peace, peace with God. Not a peace derived from circumstances. Not a peace we enjoy because of how our day is going. Not a peace that we enjoy because of our circumstances, but in spite of our circumstances. Because it is a peace rooted in grace. And the fifth blessing is this. We enjoy God as Father to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace. From God, our Father. By virtue of this union with Christ, He has forever changed our legal status. He has forever placed us in His family with all its rights and privileges. He has forever granted us an inheritance. He has forever made us His children. By virtue of union with Christ, God is our Father. And with this, says James Packer, we arrive 
at the climax of the Bible. God is our Father. All of these blessings, ours, by virtue of our union with Christ. Keep these two in mind, please. Redemption accomplished. That refers to Christ's work as mediator on behalf of his people from his conception to his resurrection and ascension and even now as he intercedes for us. Redemption accomplished. And through that accomplishment of redemption, he has purchased and secured for his people each and every spiritual blessing. How do we partake of those blessings? Redemption applied. How do we enter into the fruit and the reality and the enjoyment of those blessings? It is through union with Christ. Union with Christ is the link and the only link between redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And so when Paul says to the Colossians, yes, you're at Colossae, in Christ, he is declaring a marvelous theological truth. He's declaring a theological truth which will shape, as I already stated, the rest of this letter, the rest of the epistle. Everything will be defined by their new identity, who they are in Christ. What does it all mean for us? What are the implications of this great theological truth? Remember Martin Lloyd's terms that if we understand this, if we grasp this glorious truth, we will have understood the greatest truth there is to know. What are the implications? Let me give you five. Number one. The message of the gospel is that you must receive Christ. Obviously, there is no salvation outside of Christ. Allah can't help you. Buddha can't help you. Confucius can't help you. Any other false god out there going cannot help you. There is no other name among heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no salvation outside of Christ. We must receive him. We do not receive him to make us better and happier. We do not receive him as a cure for our sadness and loneliness. We do not receive him as a power to triumph over our problems. We receive him as a savior of sinners. And that may very well apply to you, friend, this very day. You've never received the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, hear the command of your king. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And understand this, there is no other hope. There is no other Savior of sinners. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other good news. There is no other hope under heaven whereby we can be saved from the wrath of a holy God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Implication number two is this. Our spiritual location affects our geographical location. So where are these believers? They're at Colossae. That's their physical location. What is their spiritual location? It's in Christ. And as Paul unpacks the implications of that in this epistle, he's going to explain what is the significance of their spiritual location in Christ for their life in their physical location at Colossae. Now, to grasp this deep yet simple fact that we are in Christ is to pour a new light into the heart and a new power into the life. It affects our pursuit of holiness. It affects our desire to obey. It affects our evangelism. It affects our marriage. It affects our home life. It affects our recreation. It affects and touches and influences every sphere. Our spiritual location affects our geographical location. Implication number three. We don't receive any grace that Christ didn't earn from it for us. 
We do not receive any grace that Christ did not earn for us. Oh, bear in mind, bear in mind, that the Lord Jesus Christ, while he was here on earth, yes, fully God, fully man, but his deity, his divine nature, never worked immediately that is directly upon his human nature. Did you hear that? His deity never acted immediately that is directly upon his human nature. His divine nature acted, that is, immediately through the Holy Spirit upon Christ's human nature. Everything the Lord Jesus ever did for us, he did as a man living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That's how he obeyed. That's how he prayed. That's how he grieved. That's how he struggled. That's how he suffered. That's how he died as a man living in complete dependence upon the Spirit of God. Whatever grace, the grace of faith, the grace of peace, the grace of perseverance, the grace of obedience, whatever grace we receive first belonged to Christ. The fourth implication is this. To possess Christ is to possess everything. It's the difference between everything and nothing. Between feast and famine, fullness and emptiness. It's the difference between a refreshing oasis and a crippling desert. It is the difference between an eternity of joy and pleasure and an eternity of pain and sorrow. And the fifth implication is this. Union with Christ causes the heart to burn in love for Christ. John Flavel says, this is an admirable and astonishing mystery. To be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Oh, what is this? Christian, do you not know and believe all this? Does not your heart burn in love for Christ? Union with Christ causes the heart to burn in love for our Savior. Our God and glory above, we pray that that might be our experience this day. That by your word, by your spirit, our hearts might indeed burn in love for your son, the Lord Jesus. May you enlarge our vision. May we be enraptured with his glory. May we revel in what it means to be found in him. May this delight excel all other delights. May it grip our attention. May it occupy our thoughts. May it stir and shape and mold our emotions. Might it be our daily experience as we hope in the one who has loved us and given himself up for us. This we pray in his perfect and matchless name. Amen.